Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I am Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. Today's episode is one I am especially excited about, investing in Africa. As some of you may know, I was born and raised in South Africa and still think of Africa as home. And so I'm delighted to have with us Melissa Cook. She's a CFA charter holder and founder and managing director of African Sunrise Partners, a research and advisory firm that's dedicated to bringing investment to Africa. We explore questions such as why Africa and why now? What has been the impact of COVID-19 on African economies? What is China's strategy in Africa? What are the risks and opportunities for investors and how do investors get exposure to those opportunities? Melissa shares fascinating data on African geography and demographics and helps to debunk some of the common myths about the continent. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Melissa Cook, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I am actually so pleased to have you on the show today. I've been really looking forward to our conversation. So you started your career as an equity analyst, and that really allowed you to sort of travel the globe. But for the last 10 years, you've really focused on Africa. Tell us what piqued your interest? Why did you fall in love with the continent? Well, I studied African history in college. Um, so that always was in the, in the back of my mind. And my husband and I went on our first date to the movie Out of Africa, which is obviously a very romantic version of the continent. Um, and for our 20th anniversary, he said, let's go. So we went, fell in love with East Africa and started traveling. And I noticed all the economic change that was happening. And I um, was sponsoring women through an organization called Women for Women International. And I met these women and I realized they had such commercial instincts. And I thought, you know, if people have jobs, they can solve their own problems. And what can I do? Um, so long story short, I, I founded my own company, decided to go independent in 2010 to produce research and offer advisory services to get people interested in investing in Africa. Okay, that's a sort of good jumping in point. And let's sort of start with the, the big picture. There are lots of uh, negative stereotypes, misconceptions about Africa. So when investors consider uh, Africa, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions they have? And can you help correct those? Sure. First of all, people think Africa is one country, and it's not. It's 54 countries. It's a continent of the scale that you just can't imagine until you've been there and run some numbers. So the distance between Nairobi and Dakar, Senegal, is the same as between Dakar and New York, about 3,800 air miles. So when you start realizing the scale and the distances, you can start to think about um, how different parts of the continent must be from each other. There's also a perception um, that Africans are sitting waiting for a handout. Um, and you would not believe how commercial most people are. Some countries are more commercial than others, like uh, Kenya and Nigeria are very commercial. But it's really a continent filled with young people, um, a billion people growing at 2% a year, and about uh, 60%, 60% are under the age of 25. So there's this massive young population looking for a better future for themselves. There's also this misconception that the continent is filled with war and filled with military coups. We did actually have a military coup in Mali last week, but that's the first in a very long time. Um, and the conflicts that still exist are very isolated, and it's not something that you really think about as you're traveling around. 
So, so I guess speaking of sort of negative images on, on LinkedIn fairly recently, you were saying that someone asked you if there were any good companies in Africa and you sort of ran out of time thinking of all the names to share with him. Yes. You also said that the narrative of Africa has sort of swung back to this, and in your words, shoeless child in a slum who's a tragic figure in the COVID crisis. And what you really want to do is to swing the conversation back or towards innovation and entrepreneurship and capabilities, resilience that you're seeing in so many countries. Mm -hmm. And I definitely do want to speak about all the positives. But before we do, um, we need to kind of cover the COVID-19 piece. Um, yes. I was reading recently that uh, Africa passed a, a fairly grim milestone of a million cases last month. So can you talk a bit about the damage uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, in terms of loss of uh, tourism, oil price, the sort of the human toll of the lockdown, and maybe tell us which countries uh, are faring well, all things considered, and which are really having a, a much more difficult time of it? Sure. Well, first of all, the 1 million cases, when you consider that it's a billion people, um, now that number is probably way underreported for all kinds of reasons. But if you think about New York, you think about Italy, you think about Brazil, when the infections were really running rampant, particularly early on in New York, you couldn't hide it. There were, unfortunately, there were refrigerated trucks outside hospitals functioning as morgues. You do have great pain and suffering on the continent, but it has not, has not been to the extent that we've had in some other very bad markets. I think there's some reasons for that. First of all, most African governments have been through terrible diseases before. Um, every trip that I've taken, I've always had my temperature taken at every airport. It's just part of the standard health check. Um, they understood how devastating this could be, and they locked down very quickly. Um, so you didn't have nearly as much transmission. You still could. It still could get much worse. Uh, nobody knows where this is going to go. But you've also seen some great cooperation. For example, the African Union, together with a couple of entrepreneurs, has a centralized buying platform for all COVID supplies, as opposed to here in the U.S., where all 50 states are on their own. The African countries can buy centrally. There's also been tremendous innovation. So, you know, most of what you find of the more sophisticated goods and equipment in Africa is imported. And the risk is when you have something like COVID, if you have testing machines, maybe the, you have the most advanced testing machines, you can't get the reagents, you can't get the supplies. So what do you do? You realize you've got to look inward and do more of this work yourself. So there are some of these technologies and some things where the, the innovation has just been astonishing. Um, there was a, a group of young engineering students at Kenyatta University in Nairobi who developed their own ventilator that could be made for an affordable price locally. Um, quite a number of the consumer companies have switched to making PPE. So there's there's been, um, a, I would say, a much stronger and more coordinated approach. However, the economic impact is devastating. There's just no way around that. Um, most Africans, something like 60 or 70 percent, earn their living in the informal economy. They only can eat what they earn that day. So, you know, it's a very, people are really on the edge there was tremendous coordination of resources to try to ensure that the basic minimum survival food was, was delivered. Um, but the economic damage to the poor, it's really shifted people into abject poverty that would have been maybe on the way up toward the middle class. Um, and that damage will take some time to undo. Um, you had a couple of shocks at the same time, the oil price shock, which really started a little bit before COVID and it accelerated and got worse because of COVID. 
and then tourism. Um, so you've had a, very, a big drop in the amount of foreign exchange coming into African countries. And, you know, I've been on a, a push for, for quite a long time to really get governments to understand the reason your currencies are in structural decline is because you import too much. And people understand this. If you can have import substitution, you know, if you're producing and, and processing your own food domestically instead of importing it from somewhere else, you won't be as susceptible to these foreign exchange shocks. So African nations will clearly need a, a lot of investment uh, post-pandemic. I know you're doing your part. You do a lot of research. You're trying to educate investors on, on the opportunity that is presented in Africa. Uh -huh. So lay out the case for us, you know, why Africa and, and kind of why now? Well, first of all, you can't afford to ignore it. You know, you have a continent of a billion people growing at 2%, as I said before. Um, demand exceeds supply for virtually everything. And I think it's one of the misconceptions about very um, distant parts of the world. People think there's no demand, there's no consumer demand, and nothing could be further from the truth. So you, you look at, just take that consumer picture, for example. Um, people do have money to spend, but they're very specific about what they want to spend it on, and they need the right package size, the right manufacturing cost and distribution channels to, to get those goods into the hands of people with the money to spend. So consumer companies, um, there, there's a big demand right now for investment in food processing. Um, agribusiness is a big topic of conversation. So agribusiness and food as an entire sector it's very exciting to me because African countries are just now starting to accept the idea of um, hybrid seeds, more advanced technology. Um, you're starting to see investment in fertilizer that's more tailored to the needs of each individual part of the continent. Um, and, and you still have the entire value chain, the, 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 the inputs, the, pro the, the productivity, the processing, storage, financing of the whole thing. Um, and then route to market to the consumer. I think it's a very exciting area. And the building blocks are in place, um, but there is a lot of funding needed. And you see people coming in with significant um, business orientation as opposed to a nonprofit orientation. Technology and communications is another area that's very interesting. Um, first of all, most of the mobile phone carriers have sold their towers to independent tower companies, and they are in the process of expanding their portfolio, improving the economics. So that's an interesting area. Um, at least one of them has already gone public. Helios, uh, an American tower, is also sizable. But you have such an incredible um, early adopters of technology um, because people don't have brick-and-mortar bank branches to go to. Um, and a lot of them don't have bank accounts. They have mobile wallets instead. They think we're so archaic using uh, credit cards. Um, and there's, uh, Google has done a great job with the, the Android app developer ecosystem. Um, the, the app developers are creating solutions for problems that we didn't even really think needed to be fixed, but delivering high quality education content to children, um, providing remote healthcare, which now we understand more about why that's so important. So anything related to technology and communications, um, a lot of the big American companies are already there and have been quite successful. Um, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, um, Oracle, and quite a few others. 
Um, there's, there's a big need for infrastructure. Um, I know that there are types of, uh, they're being looked at as a different asset class now by some long-term pension investors. Um, I think when you can find infrastructure that generates cash, whether it's uh, energy-related, power sector, communications, uh, transportation, you know, those areas I think can absorb a lot more capital. So let's talk a little bit about the capital markets piece of the story. Uh, sure. If investors are interested in getting exposure to these opportunities, uh, how do they do so? There are um, some relatively well-developed capital markets on the continent, and they've been built with uh, support from the U.S. Treasury, from the London Stock Exchange. They use global standard technology. Um, they are uh, fairly compliant. I would say there are probably some areas that need to be tightened up, but people would recognize all of the compliance rules. And the stock exchanges have done this deliberately to make themselves investable. The challenge has been getting local companies to list. And I've seen this over and over again. You have a family-owned company that should streamline its, its businesses, develop a better capital structure, and list on an exchange. And that hasn't really happened because valuations haven't been there. So right now, when you look at the African securities exchanges, and I'm thinking specifically, Johannesburg is more developed. So that one's already quite large and very investable. Um, but the Nairobi Securities Exchange and the Lagos Stock Exchange um, are two big ones that really have been beaten down. Um, so, you know, we're looking at companies with no debt, with good cash flows, um, trading at extremely low valuations, and investors can take a look and, and make their own judgment about where they think that business is going to go. But you can actually buy shares. You also have a number of companies with either dual listings um, in London and an African exchange, or just a pure London stock exchange listing. There are quite a few of those. And then the, the, a lot of the mining companies are listed in uh, Canada, and there are a couple of companies listed in New York. So let's spend a few minutes uh, on China. We hear a lot about sure. uh, Chinese companies in Africa. You have done some research on this topic. So just tell us a little bit about uh, China's role in Africa. Sure. Well, I used to cover China before I started covering Africa. And when I started going, every company said the same thing to me. We're going to use our domestic cash flow, invest in research and development, move up the value chain, and compete in global export markets. And the domestic cash flow is huge for some of these companies. You think about the scale of the Chinese economy. Um, and many of them understood how to set up manufacturing and develop their services on a much smaller capital base than a typical American company or European company would do. They also understood that the needs of their customers were going to be different because when you're going into brand new markets, people don't have, they, they don't care if something's going to last 30 or 40 years. They want something that will work today. And five years from now, their needs will have changed. They can get rid of it and buy something new. So the, the critical thing was value for money and bringing in products at a price point that the customer can afford and then deliver enough service. So if a truck starter lasts a million starts on a Bosch starter or whatever the number is, you can have a Chinese-made truck at one-tenth of that, and it's still considered value. So the Chinese um, government also had a very clear strategy of going out. Um, they had strategic industries in, in, uh, in power, in transportation, in healthcare, uh, technology, where these companies were given a lot of government support, a lot of them government-owned. Um, and they started going into frontier markets, of which the African countries are a prime example. 
They need excavators. They need uh, mobile phone uh, communications network equipment. They need um, trains. So the Chinese companies have been aggressive and early, very willing to take risk, and they come in with the backing of different Chinese financial institutions. And they operate in a different way than the U.S. Exim Bank, for example. They're allowed to tie a deal to using the Chinese equipment, which we're not permitted to do. So what you find is a politician comes into office and he's promised his people, you're going to have a new bridge between A and B, and we're going to have a new road that, that gets you to market quicker. Um, the Chinese construction company will show up and say, here's the check, here's the deal, here's our equipment, we're going to use our people, we'll build it, and it'll be done. Now, it may or may not be the perfect quality, but it's done. And the politician has it there for the next time he needs to get reelected. You also have, um, frankly, much more aggressive R&D in some areas like Huawei, which I know is a, a dirty word in the U.S. at this point. But you know, Huawei has been very aggressive and advanced in putting new technology to work on the continent. They've moved from 2G, 3G, 4G, and now looking at 5G. Um, and they've gone in with Chinese financing, and they've built a lot of the mobile communications infrastructure. So there's just no American or European company that's done that. They're, you know, the, the CEOs tend to see Africa as too scary and dangerous and not important enough. So the Chinese have taken over. And guess what? They've gained skill. They've gained scale. Um, their products are better and better all the time. Um, and now they're globally competitive. So you mentioned that the Chinese are willing to take on risk in Africa. So yeah. that's a part of the equation we haven't really talked a bit about uh, yet. Uh, just lay out some of the risks. And I know that you're a big advocate for uh, investing in Africa, but what worries you about investing on the continent? Well, first of all, I, I like to say to people, the biggest risk is not being there. And what I really mean by that is if you're a chief investment officer or a chief executive officer, you should know why you're in Africa or why you're not. So that requires thoughtful and uh, deliberate analysis and, and risk um, mitigation. But assuming you've gone and you're there, you have political risk, um, which is, it's a factor. It's a factor in the U.S. It's a factor everywhere. But, you know, you do have political change. Um, you have climate change. You know, Africa, uh, many of the, the richest agricultural areas are at risk because of climate change, and you're already seeing it in, in the weather patterns. Um, there's also, in, in some of the mo more interesting markets that I follow, like Angola and Ethiopia, they're really not all that, they don't, haven't bought into the capitalist model. So you may go in thinking that you know how much money you're going to make and what kind of returns. You've done your analysis top-down of the economy and the size of the market and your competition. But for example, in the cement market right now, you have way too many companies putting in, in plants in Nigeria. And um, you know that is a very capitalist country, but people are losing margin because there's just too much competition. So sometimes you might find uh, whether it's a local company or some other multinational coming in and just undercutting you because there's too much competition. So any of our listeners who want to learn a bit more about investing in Africa, do you have any resources that you could recommend? Sure. Well, of course, there's my research, which I offer on a subscription basis at two different price points. Um, I also like Africa.com. It's, a, it's an aggregator website with great resources, and they've been running very interesting and high-level webinars throughout the COVID crisis. 
For China, there's a wonderful group called the China-Africa Research Institute at Johns Hopkins School of International Studies. Um, Deborah Braudigam wrote a book called The Dragon's Gift, and she runs that. And she is one of the best at understanding both sides, China and Africa. And then I rely heavily on the IMF and the World Bank. You know, they publish um, what they call art Article 4 review reports for different countries that are under an IMF program. Um, and the World Bank will offer more, more qualitative, but also great statistics. Great, thank you. So we're going to wrap up with our ray of sunshine question. And regular mm -hmm. listeners know that I like to end these episodes on something positive. So mm -hmm. really just a, kind of a broad question for you. Uh, personally, what do you think will be the most positive outcome for you from the COVID-19 uh, crisis? Well, fortunately, I've been protected. I have a wonderful work-at-home situation. Um, and believe it or not, my business is busier than ever um, because people are trying to sort things out. And I have a lot of advisory work that, that's continuing. But to me, you know, one of the biggest things that's been holding Africa back is government unwillingness to change, where it's obvious to everyone that they need to change. And maybe now they'll actually open up and allow more privatizations, more business involvement. And I think, you know, the young people in Africa are pushing for this. Um, governments really have no choice in a lot of cases. And I think it could have a very, very favorable outcome. You have this incredible business energy and entrepreneurial energy in Africa that, you know, if it's allowed to do what it needs to do, not only can it really create technologies that could be used around the world, it can put young people to work. And it can bring a lot of optimism back to how people look at the continent. Well, that's a great note on which to end. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Melissa. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.